Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, college football and auto racing fans across the nation and around the world. This is Tim May with the Tim May Podcast. Oh, man, my guest this week, my co-pilot, my special co-pilot. I've been having special co-pilots. And uh, Dan D.P. McQuig, welcome to the Tim May Podcast. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to introduce you. You're uh, there. This is perfect timing for me finally having a conversation with you. You've been soliciting me for a while now, and I don't blame you. But uh, being 68 years old, I sometimes forget what's coming and going. But, uh, <laughs> man, you're the perfect guy to have on my podcast this week because not only uh, did you put your heart and soul into a book about uh, uh, about Buckeye football from way back when, before people really started paying attention to it nationwide, or actually it's when people did start paying attention to it finally in your book, uh, but but you also include a, a passage in there. You include reference in there to a guy named Lee Frayer. And let's get right to it. Why this has been a uh, special week. This is a special week for this because uh, not only did was Lee Frayer correct? Do I have the name correct? Yes. Yep. Not only did he play football for Ohio State back in the late 1890s or mid 1890s, he also drove in the 1911 Indianapolis 500. And of course, this week is the week of the Indianapolis 500. So. Uh, Take it away there, Dan. Well, what's so important about Lee Frayer? He, uh, uh, well, there's a number of things that are important. Uh, he was uh, uh, a student at Ohio State in engineering. And at the time, I mean, there's a probably a book on just the, the engineers that came out of uh, Ohio State at the time. Uh, but he played, he was an end uh, in an era when they had no helmets, uh, it was a dangerous game, and I have a feeling um, there's not a whole lot. He didn't do much else other than extracurricular stuff, so there wasn't a lot of material on him. Yeah. But um, I'm working on a bigger project, and I, I, I've been uh, drilling down on individual players to try to find you know their careers afterwards, and this just laid out that he built a car and raced it in the very first – Indianapolis 500 that he uh, dubbed the Red Wing Red Wing Special, I believe, and it uh -huh. was painted scarlet and gray. And the team, uh, his mechanics and whatnot, all wore scarlet and gray overalls. Another fascinating aspect of this is he also put in Eddie Rickenbacker in the car with him when I think he was about 15 or 16 years old. Yeah, but. If, if Lee Freyer never did anything else, he discovered Eddie Rickenbacker. Yeah, and, and, and what people don't understand is back then you had what's known as a riding mechanic uh, who would ride in the car with you. Some of those guys got thrown out. You know, It's kind of like side oh, yeah. racing in motorcycles. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Lee Freyer actually got injured in some form or fashion during that race, and Eddie Rickenbacker took over and drove the car uh, at a young, really young age. I'm not – and I think Eddie Rickenbacker may have, uh, as they say, slipped in the back door to even be in the car in the first place because he was too young at that point, I think, to be in that race in 1911. But uh, I, would, I, I would believe now he uh, he, ra he raced. He, he's, he uh, was in the car with with Frere uh, and his job was to watch the, the fuel, monitor the fuel pressure, monitor the tire wear. He was yeah. the rearview mirror. Yes, exactly. And there were no safety. There were no seat belts or anything. Yeah, they got thrown out all the time. Hey, I got I got news for you, Dan. Back then, they they 
thought it was safer to get thrown clear, you know, because number one, they weren't going 200 miles an hour. They were barely uh, hitting 75 or 80 down the straight and uh, right. maybe, maybe 85 miles an hour, but it was because those things were loaded with gasoline, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, it was crazy. Uh, but the bottom line, Ray Haroon uh, drove solo in that race. And he was, he is credited with maybe being the first person ever to use a rear view mirror, which is crazy. But the thing about Eddie Rickenbacker, that's interesting before we move back to the Buckeyes of York, cause that's, to me, that's as interesting as anything else. Eddie Rickenbacker, of course, went on to become a World War One ace, uh, yeah. fighter pilot, and he ended up buying. You know, he's from Columbus, Ohio. Ended up buying Indianapolis Motor Speedway back in the late 1920s. Kind of saved it to a certain extent and held it all the way up to the start of World War II. And it fell into disrepair because they closed the racetrack then during World War II because the last thing you wanted to be do was be wasting gasoline and, and rubber and tires, etc. Yeah. And, and even metal, you know, uh, metal yeah. was in short supply then. Uh, and um, and then, of course, he sold the Indianapolis Motor Speedway rather than reopen it uh, after World War II. And uh, the next chapter of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was born. But uh, the bottom line is uh, uh, Lee Frayer, you know, he won a race in Columbus, Ohio. Before mm-hmm. that race, he beat the likes of Barney Oldfield and anybody who knows anything about old time, long time ago, auto racing, remembers the name Barney Oldfield, Barney Oldfield special, et cetera. But uh, mm-hmm. won a race here in Columbus, not really sure exactly where that race was, but uh, before he went to Indianapolis and he was, Lee Frayer was an interesting guy. I think he was from Missouri, correct? Originally. No, there is a, if you do a little research, you will find a Lee Frayer in Missouri. He grew up in what's called the Firelands part of, of Ohio. Yeah. Uh, which is up around Huron County, and his and his grandfather was uh, a breeder of of thoroughbred horses that specialized in in uh, pulling carriages and and whatnot. Wow. But he was also an inventor, and he invented some some things. So I think for for Lee, I think driving filled those competitive danger. Uh, yes. Uh, aspects of his personality but he also had that inventive he's the first guy that apparently put the uh steering wheel on the left hand side of the car he (laughs) felt it gave you a better perspective of cars coming at you to turn and whatnot yeah yeah i think steering wheel at at, at one point was in the middle or on the right side but uh you're Mm -hmm. right in in america you know of course the way the traffic set up but he would he wouldn't like that mclaren f1 where they uh quote unquote uh, street sports car where the steering wheel is right in the middle and you got your two passengers on either side of you. Matter of fact, he <laughs> might like that, but uh, hey, let's get right into it though. Uh, you know, it's interesting in this, this Memorial Memorial day uh, week, so to speak, coming up et cetera, et cetera. And uh, a lot of things went on way back when in that time of the, in that time of our country's history, but uh, what compelled you to write about, the Buckeyes days of yore, the Buckeyes of yore uh, from back in the late, you know, when basically the, the, the football program started in 1890, what, what compelled you to tell the history of that, or, or maybe better put, put it all on paper and, uh, and expound a little bit on it. What, what was interesting to you about it? It's, it's the story of how I got to this book is kind of interesting. You had mentioned Eddie, Eddie Rickenbacker in world war one. Well, I had I was trying to launch a digital magazine about Ohio State's sports history about six or seven years ago. 
And I did a story on Ohio State football during World War II. Paul Brown gets hired in 1941, I believe. Uh, and in 42, they win their first national championship. Right. Well, uh, in, I guess, December of 41, after his first season, and they tie – uh, Michigan, and it's a huge tie for the football program because Michigan had humiliated them the year before. And uh, Pearl Harbor happens a week, a little more than a week later. And uh, then Paul Brown ends up leaving because Ohio State, I learned, I learned all this as a, I was, already had a book idea. Uh, but the interesting thing was that Ohio State had aligned itself with the U.S. Army's officer training program. And so the Army was uh, uh, prohibited any uh, draft-eligible uh, men from playing any athletics on campus. So uh, the night, so 42, they win the national championship, and 43, the entire team's out fighting the war. Yeah. 43, they only can play with 17-year-old kids or, or people that the Army has said, we're not going to draft you because, well, Bill Willis had varicose veins. Um, Gordon, uh, uh, is it Appleby, uh, had uh, uh, asthma or something. So they – and Horvath in 1944 comes back because he had, they decided they didn't need any dentists. <laughs> so I was – Doing a story on this, I grew up in Fredericktown, and uh, Ollie Klein was the 17-year-old freshman fullback. So I would really started researching him. And as I learned more and more, if you go back to the Chick Harley era, the same thing happened. Yeah. The first time they had a prominent, nationally prominent football team, it gets broken up by World War One. Yeah. And as I did more and more research, I discovered that when the land grant act was signed, Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, insisted that they include a military training aspect of, of every male student had to take two years of military training. And uh, so now that book is a whole different animal. And a lot of these stories were stories that I were, was trying to make fit and they just, at the end is like, ah, I got material for another book. I'll go ahead and do this other book. Yeah. But there's just so many fascinating stories that, that, that happened around Ohio state university and Ohio state football. And I had known the, the George, uh, the Bush family connection for years. But other than that, I learned all this stuff on the fly. Yeah. Hey, hold up your, hold up a copy of your book and, uh, so people can see, you know, this is available. It's still available, right, on Amazon. And yeah, it's on Amazon. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, let's go back though. Why did Ohio State start? Why? What got it into intercollegiate uh, football? There you go. Look at that. He doesn't want to go out. He's he's afraid of what's out there. <laughs> That's his dog, ladies and gentlemen, making a guest appearance on the Tim May podcast. Um, I'll have to give. I'll have to give him residuals now. Um, <laughs> Well, what, what just what made the Ohio State football, I guess, uh, program sort of take off after getting started in 1890? Well, well they had there was a 10 year 
period in the 80s where the students were really trying to get a game. They played what they called the Old North Dorm, which was the biggest dorm on campus. Uh, I think somewhere like if you if you walk down from Neal Avenue down towards the uh, uh, University Hospital, that's where they they played. And it had a lot to do with which how organized the students were. And when they graduate, then the whole thing would kind of fall apart. And finally, in 1890, um, they finally played their first game up in Delaware against uh, Ohio Wesleyan. Yeah, they won. Um, and there were enough of those kids that were still around that they were easy. It was much easier to put a team together. And the other aspect was um, Kenyon and Denison and Oberlin. There were they formed an association, a statewide association, which which, which really helped them be able to schedule games. That was yeah. the biggest hurdle was the other other teams to play yeah well who who was the you know obviously chick harley took it over the top i mean the interest in him in the uh in the 19 teens uh took it over the top i mean the house that harley built which is ohio stadium now uh brought brought all that interest but who who did you find who did you find in those early years or where was that first a player and then like a maybe a team that that really got people's attention uh, from a local standpoint, maybe even starting to get people's attention from a national standpoint or regional standpoint. Well, what, who is a player that stands out to you from that from that era? In the aughts, so get past 1901, uh, probably the first, there were two players, they were teammates, they were both from Columbus's east side. Uh, one of them's name was Walter, they called him Rink Barrington, and he was a uh, I call him a bantamweight uh, little rooster, kind of yeah. cocky, great athlete. Um, but he was a quarterback, and then there was a fullback by the name of uh, Miller Gibson. And uh, Barrington became na a national name because some newspaper syndicate did a story on him calling him the uh, the most talented college or i think the, the oh shoot i forget the term they used but but basically the, yeah yeah i mean he was just the the uh what was the phrase that um teddy roosevelt always used about Walk softly carry a big stick no <laughs> But anyways, so they yeah. did. The, it was a full page on those old broadsheet newspapers. It was a full page with pictures and it there's a lot of hyperbole about all of his skills and whatnot. Yeah. But that was kind of famous. And then they also played in van at, against Vanderbilt, which was the best team in the South at the time. That's hard to believe and, in it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, it, 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 yeah. And, and, <laughs> and what I think the modern fan wouldn't get is they weren't called the Buckeyes yet. Yeah. They didn't get called the Buckeyes until they got into the Big Ten and left the state every once in a while. Any team that played outside of Ohio would be case was referred to as the Buckeyes against Michigan in, in you know the yeah. turn of the century. Yeah. Um but but in the in they they won the Vanderbilt game and it got some it got a paragraph or two in papers all over the country. And then this, this fullback, uh, 
uh, Millard Gibson, Gibby, uh, he was kind of a big man on campus already. He was an actor and he kind of had, you know, that matinee good looking guy and he sang and, um, and he scored the first legitimate touchdown against Michigan. Wow. And it set off a party. They, they lost again, like for the 14th time in a row or whatever. Well, Michigan had ringers. We all know that, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about days of yore. Go ahead. That's another story. Well, Yost, Yost was a, he, he when he's when he was still playing or coaching at Ohio Wesleyan, Michigan stopped playing them because he would play. Yeah, back in the day. But <laughs> I got a yearning. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but to Millard Gibson, uh, so he's obviously very popular on campus. Well, uh, Walter Camp wrote about that touchdown in his annual wrap-up for the season, and and that made Millard Gibson the first honorable mention Ohio State football player. Yeah. Because that's what it meant then. It wasn't a list. It was he would write a line about a player, and he got an honorable mention. You know, Gibby Gibson, ladies and gentlemen, uh, who knew? Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, let's follow up. I mean, you know, obviously, what was it, 1914, Ohio State joined the Big Ten finally. Ohio State kind of outgrew – uh, it's really funny because I, I've always said, you know, a good book, which I'm not going to do, but someone could do is when is when some schools decided they were going to go big time in football and others didn't, you know, and it pretty much, you know, I call it the stadium building era of the 19 early 1900s up through about 1930. And of course, Ohio Stadium was built. Uh, this is uh, celebrating its uh, 100th anniversary coming up oh, yeah, this year. Yeah obviously, but in the 1920s, the house that Harley built. Uh, but in 1914, Ohio State decided, hey, it's time to move into the Big Ten and stuff. And just what, what, what was just your take, I mean, from your research and stuff, was Ohio State ready for that move? I mean, from, from what you could tell. I mean, how much of a big bite was it taking out of the apple there? It's interesting if you look at the first 20 years or so, they, they beat up on, I, I make some reference, like they're the big brother beating up on they, they would win all of their games against Ohio schools. Yeah. And they would lose all of their games against Indiana or West Virginia or Michigan. And Michigan was the only one that they played regularly, but they rarely left the state. And uh, I think they, I think the evidence tells us they were ready. Um, but hiring John Wils, Wilsey, Wilchie, yeah. I'm not sure. On the yeah. But John hiring Wilson. him turned out to be the right thing to do. And in terms of, uh, and I don't cover her, I, I go up until they yes. join. Yeah. But, uh, but I do cover that pre-area that led up to it. And Harley's, uh, I think because he was from Columbus and folks had watched him come up, that it brought more of Columbus and there was more of a draw. Um, Bob Hunter uh, called it the big bang of uh, Ohio state football was, was Harley's touchdown in Illinois where Illinois head coach wasn't even at the game. He didn't even bother. He went and scouted their next team. (laughs) And, and, and what happens was they had gone from needing to add seats just to, 
make up for all the tickets that they've been so- selling. And they had added 4,000 before the season started. Well, this the win they had in Illinois, there was a two-week they were off the week in between. Well, they added something like 8,000 seats to what was, you know, they almost doubled their their seats. Ohio um, Field, right up there, up there off High Street. Yeah, the corner yeah. of Woodruff and High. Yeah. Yes. But that was all driven by his star power. Yeah. And, and it, it, that's the way it is. I mean, even back then, man, you win with people, as Woody Hayes said, and mm-hmm. uh, and recruiting was was what you know was already in full full fledged there. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's interesting how that goes. You know, as you look back in the was was there ever a time in the late eight in the eighteen nineties or early nineteen hundreds when it when the program, uh, from what you can tell, or at least from researching these players, because you do a great job of like. You know, like you said, uh, like in your note to me, but you're you're right. It's almost like a uh, 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 sports information guide to some of these players that people never heard of. You know, or, or pay to, little yeah. attention to. I mean, they, they'd be lucky to have four, fourteen or fifteen guys on the team. You know, <laughs> but because uh, most well, of them, go ahead. But, but, but was, was was there a, was there a moment? Was there a time in there a couple of years where it teetered? You know what I mean? Where did did, did you feel, or was it just a constant build from like eighteen ninety onward? It was it was a slow build in the 1890s where and I think when they get to when they hire John X X Storm, they had they were under 500 uh, until 1899 as a as a program. Yeah. And, and when they hired John X Storm, um, I, you know. I write this. They have their first undefeated season. I think they go eight zero and one, and then the next year they go nine and zero, nine zero and one. But they tie Michigan, which is their great. Despite what Gordon Gee said in nineteen ninety seven, their greatest victory was their zero to zero tie against Michigan in 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 nineteen hundred. I mean they they lived on that for generations. Um. But his whole program came crashing down when John Sigrist died of injuries in, in a game. So if there was any setback of that period, that probably set him back a couple of years because Xstorm decides to become a to go to become a doctor and yeah. But that's the interesting period for college football itself because it was a brutal game, and mm-hmm. uh, you know Teddy Roosevelt obviously had that. It basically brought about. For one of another uh, another way of putting it, brought about the formation of the for in SSC NCAA. You, yeah. you got to have some rules, you know. It's funny you got to have some guardrails. That's the key term now, you know, with the name, image, and likeness and transfer portal now turning everything upside down. But you got to have some uh, some rules, some guardrails, and it it was a, a key moment there. And like you wrote about 1899 to 1901 was sort of the first real golden era, but then it came at a cost. Uh, yeah. What What do you think really spurred it uh, from from like the uh, early 1900s? What What was the real spur there that didn't let it die? In your opinion, the students. You know, there there, there was a lot. They took a lot of pride in it. Um, it, it, it you know, and it's 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 interesting reading things over a hundred years ago. How 
they didn't show enough. The writers in the lantern would complain about not showing enough school spirit. And then, you know, then they'll have a thousand kids show up for a pep rally when there were only 1200 kids in the school. Yeah. But yeah. And, and, and there was the, all the kids that went to school, there really cared about their alma mater. And you can see that up in, in a lot of what I, a lot of the information that I would find would be uh, really good stuff were letters written in the thirties by guys who were there 50 years ago and talking about how, you know, how important yeah. it was to them yeah. for, from a researcher's standpoint, that was, that was much better than the actual contemporary stuff because they didn't really say much compared to what we're used to, you know, the game coverage might be four inches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get the score in. Who scored the touchdown? Maybe. Uh, yeah. Of course, scoring back then was so uh, was so interesting, uh, the way you accumulated points. But that's another story. Yeah. Hey, last thing about that book. Uh, what did you find out that just sticks with you to this day of, you know, a lot of things you can kind of go, okay, I could see that comment, blah, blah, blah. Well, what is one thing you just kind of went, wow. I would have, I would have never thought that, or I, I had never heard that anecdote. Or what, what is one thing that just sticks with you to this day when you tell the story about the book? Well, the most interesting character in the whole book was 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 Xstorm to me, uh, and 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 of you know I've been in Columbus now for close to thirty years and kind of remember a little bit of that old timey Columbus and and. Uh, uh, but he was a fixture at the Agonis Club or uh, the quarterback club that the Ohio State Journal had at the time. Yeah. Um, to the to the point where, on his in his nineties, I think he was still the the doctor for the wrestling matches, and and he was like, I, I have to perform, and he'd go in with the smelling salts and lay down with the wrestlers and. I, that was just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, obviously, that was before college football coaches were making big, 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 big money, and uh, they were pretty much on reputation more than anything else. And uh, yeah. hey, real quick, uh, what is your? Uh, do you have another project coming along? Have you have you had another project since you and I first communicated? I mean, what what do you have in the pipeline? I'm still working on. It, it, it's basically the intersection between Ohio State's commitment to military training and and the vast number of football players that that went on to have. I can give you a quick quick little anecdote. Yeah. The original manager back then, the manager was the athletic director, but he was a he was a 16 year old prep student at Ohio State's high school, and he went on, uh, he was a captain for the 80 or 92 and 93 seasons. And, uh, he, he went on to have a military career afterwards, uh, fought in the Spanish American more than spotted, uh, fought in the Philippines. By the time world war one comes around, he's basically training, um, artillery after the war because so many, uh, we lost so many soldiers at such a rate that we didn't know how to take care of the bodies. 
they basically just buried him wherever they died. Yeah. And uh, his name's R- Richard T. Ellis, and he's lieutenant colonel. He was with the quartermasters, and he's the guy who organized all the cemeteries for the World War I people. Wow. Um, and he, uh, and uh, after that, the United States Congress decided that they were going to pay to have the mothers of, uh, of these fallen soldiers. They were given the choice to be buried in Europe or they would bring them back just to the U.S. and you, the parents had to pay to bring them home or they would put them in Arlington or one of the other national. Well, Ellis is still in charge of this whole movement. And I think they brought over 6,800 mothers. And on the very first ship, he's over in, in, uh, in, in, in France to welcome this first ship. And two of the mothers are mothers of Ohio State football players. Wow. One, one of the football players died. Another had a brother who had passed away. Wow. And that's kind of like, that's how I closed this book that I'm working on. Gotcha. Dan D.P. McQuig. Dan McQuig, thank you for joining the Tim May Podcast, my man. And uh, we started out with a connection of Ohio State football and the Indianapolis 500. You can't go wrong there, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about a collision. And we end, we end with that story. I can't wait till that book comes out because that sounds fascinating to me, man. The people, some of the people behind the scenes you never think of, you know what I mean, that, mm-hmm. uh, that did great things. But, Dan, appreciate you joining me, my man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And until next week, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim May for Dan McQuig. We'll see you then. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to – has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.